Well, Deuteronomy 29, here we've got a kind of uh, repetition of a covenant. Uh, verse, verse 1, these are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses uh, to make with the children of Israel, besides the covenant which he had made with them in Horeb. Now, the whole of the Bible is really uh, the encouraging picture of God's grace toward us. And, of course, the Old Testament is so much longer than the New Testament, and it's the history of Israel, really, most of it. And why have we got all this history? Why all this incredible detail? And I think it's really to encourage us as the new Israel, as Israel after the Spirit, the, the people of God in our generation, that God's grace is so great and his desire to keep on working with his people is absolutely phenomenal. Now, what's this first covenant then that God made at Horeb? Well, it was quite uh, simple that God said there, if, if you are obedient, then you shall be uh, my special people. And it was conditional. And as we read on here in Deuteronomy 29, he says that you didn't keep your sight of it. You saw, verse 2, with your eyes all that the Lord did, but verse 4, the Lord did not give you a heart to see. So they saw physically, literally, but they did not perceive it. And despite all God's care towards them, they had turned to, to idols, uh, etc. And God could justifiably have said, well, that's it. Look, in, at Horeb, uh, Exodus 19, I made this deal with you, and you didn't keep it. So that's, that's the end of it. But here God announces another covenant. It's a repetition of that covenant. But it's as if he's saying, you didn't keep your side of the deal, but anyway, I'm going to go ahead and repeat that covenant, reaffirm that covenant with you, even though you broke your side of it. Now, you see there this tremendous energy within God to want to have relationship with his people. God is not there in heaven, kind of passive and indifferent, thinking in our generation, look, I gave my son to die for you. I have set up everything. I called you to know my truth. And if you don't want it, well, look, this is your problem. That's unfortunately the attitude that we encounter uh, so often amongst ourselves in terms of those who leave the faith uh, and in terms of those who take a look in, as it were, and then say, no, nah, not for me. We tend to shrug. But God doesn't shrug and move on. He really is the shepherd who keeps on seeking until he finds the lost sheep. And the whole history with Israel is, is just classic. Now, let's go down to verse 13. He's going to make this covenant that he may establish you today as a people for himself and that he may be God to you just as he has spoken to you. When did he speak that to them? In Exodus 19. When 40 years previously he had said, if you are obedient, then you will be my special people. Exodus 19, 5 and 6. They didn't keep their part of it. And yet he says here, I want you all the same as my people. He says there that I am going to this day establish you as a people for myself. But in Deuteronomy 28, verse 9, the previous chapter, uh, he says there that if you are obedient, then the Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, just as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments. 
The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, just as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments. But now here, 29 verse 13, he says, This day, when you have been disobedient, I establish you today as a people for myself, just as I have sworn to you. So this is grace in the extreme. He so wants to have a people. Now, that grace only really comes from a deep need and a deep uh, love, of course, for the beloved, for the object of that love. And as the Jewish rabbis have said so often, God is in need of man. God is in need of Israel. And that may be a strange idea at first blush, but that is indeed uh, the case. Now, going down to verse 23... He talks about what's going to happen to them if they continue worshipping idols. He says the whole land will become brimstone, salt and burning, uh, and it will be like the overthrow, of, the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah. And all nations will say, verse 24, why has the Lord done this to his land, etc. And the answer will be, because they forsook the covenant of the Lord God of their fathers. Well, they did forsake that covenant, and they did go, verse 26, and serve other gods. We know that. But did the whole land become like Sodom and Gomorrah? Did it turn into a kind of a, a, a huge uh, area of brimstone, salt and burning? No, it didn't. God said, if this is what you're going to do, then this is what will happen, and people will look at that land that I promised to Abraham, and it will just be a huge salt pit burning with brimstone. Did that ever happen? No. So the God who puts so much store and value upon his own word is, in his love and grace, willing to, as it were, not do what he has said within his own word, quite simply because of his love and his pity towards his people. The idea that the Old Testament God was somehow a God of wrath and anger and the New Testament is all love and cuddles, uh, this is really a totally superficial reading of the Bible. When you look in more detail, you see it all through his history with Israel, this grace even in the midst of threatened judgment. This grace, you see that in the prophets, predictions of the forthcoming Babylonian Assyrian invasions and yet within the same prophecy a huge reference to his grace and his future plans for them some of the greatest prophecies of God's future kingdom and his future intention with Israel are to be found in the midst of prophecies apparently uttered in wrath when Israel were at the nadir at the, the lowest point of their relationship with God now this God is our God when you come to the New Testament, Paul talks about grace and puts it all in theological terms in so many words. But he's only repeating, really, what you can read and see visually, as it were, in Old Testament history. just like to uh, drop back uh, to verse 4. The Lord has not given you a heart to perceive. Now, this is a criticism of them. They had seen, verse 2, but he says, the Lord didn't give you a heart to see. So God is willing and able to give psychological attitudes. He is able to give a new spirit because this whole idea of how you perceive, how you see, how you think, your heart, another word for that would simply be spirit. And in the New Testament we have the promise of a holy spirit, <clears throat> a holy mind from God. 
the eyes, Paul says, of your understanding being enlightened. Almost as if he uh, has this, uh, this verse here in mind, that God can close hearts and minds and he can open if he wishes. So don't think that it's just God facing off against you with a Bible on the table between the two of you and it's all over to you. God wants you. He really does, just as he wanted Israel. Going on then, verse uh, 8, he reminds them, verse 7 and 8, how when you came to this place, they're still on the east bank of Jordan, uh, Sihon and Og came out against us to battle, we conquered them, we took their land, gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, etc. Therefore keep the words of this covenant. That whole... uh, language about taking the land and giving the land for an inheritance, conquering, etc. These are the same terms used about what Israel were to do with the rest of the land, the majority of the land, which was on the west bank of, of Jordan. So they were given a foretaste of the kingdom just before they got in there. And yet, as soon as they got into the land, they feared the Canaanite tribes, did they not? They didn't learn the lesson that they were given from that foretaste of victory that they were given. seems to me that in our walk towards God's kingdom, we are given foretastes of the victory. We are given foretastes of God's kingdom. And Israel were given that towards the end of their wilderness journey, and it could... Almost be, I think, that at the end, towards the end of our journey, towards the end of human life, we are also given those kind of foretastes. I have seen that in the lives of others. So don't think that if you are in declining years and you're coming as you feel to to the end of your journey, that uh, God has kind of wound down his operation with you. Not at all. It's actually accelerated, I think, right towards the end. Now, he does, of course, talk in very strong terms about what will happen if they continue to, 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 to worship idols. And he warns about uh, false teachers, um, verse, 20, uh, sorry, verse 18 at the end, uh, beware that there is not a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. And I think that is picked up then, of course, in the, uh, in the New Testament in, in Hebrews about the need to watch out for false teaching. And he warns, verse 21, the punishment for that man is that the Lord will separate him from all the tribes of Israel, according to all the curses of the covenant. That separation from God's people is exactly what God did to Achan. You remember when all Israel were brought before Moses and they were gone through until eventually Achan was separated from his people and destroyed. The same with Korodathan and Abidam. You remember they were separated progressively from God's people and then the earth opened and swallowed them. Matthew 13 verse 49, Matthew 13:49, we're told that at the day of judgment the angels will sever the wicked from among the just. That seems to be implying that the mass of people standing for judgment, the responsible, will have within them the wicked and the just, and the angels in the judgment process will sever the wicked from among the just. So then the idea of the rejected being severed from God's people is fairly common in these pictures of condemnation. 
Revelation 16 verse 15, the people of God will see the naked shame of the rejected, that they will, as it were, stand naked and walk in shame. But shame is relative to people looking at you, and their shame will be in the eyes of the rest of the congregation of God's people. And this leads us to a principle, I think, that if we separate ourselves from God's people in this life, then we are really living out the very picture of condemnation. I'll say that again. If we separate ourselves from God's people in this life, we are living out the very picture of condemnation. Now, we can separate ourselves from God's people by simply being disinterested in them, by saying, yeah, well, I'll go to the, uh, I'll go to the meeting now and again. I will send the odd email to uh, my fellow believers now and again. Uh, but basically, look, I'm getting on with my business, with my career, with my family. I'm, you know, I'm just going my own way. That is also a desire to separate from God's people. Of course, it may be that we have no option due to factors uh, beyond our own control. Maybe some of those factors related to, to previous failures in our lives, wrong decision making, poor decision making. But all the same. What I'm talking about is having a willful desire to be separate from God's people. And of course, the other way that particularly in our own community this tends to work out, this separating from God's people, is by throwing people out of fellowship or by saying, well, yes, I accept that all you people are in the body of Christ, but I will have nothing to do with you. Because, well, it's a long story, but you see, because, well, we have a statement of faith and, uh, well, that sort of excludes you and we have a fellowship practice that sort of excludes you people. Oh, very sorry about it, but that's how it is. Well, okay, the bottom line is, no matter how painful it may be for you, no matter what social consequences there are for you, the bottom line of that is that you have separated yourself from God's people. And as I say, this separation from God's people is the very picture of condemnation. And you could argue from 1 Corinthians 11 that that, that is one of the themes that he has there, that we are one body and one bread, as he says also in 1 Corinthians 10. And we are to, at the breaking of bread, to ensure that we discern the body in the sense of recognizing the body of Christ for who it is. And, of course, it does talk about personal self-examination, but I think also in that context. And it's just perfectly human to feel that, look, I just can't go on with that person or this person or whatever because they believe this or they misunderstand that or they simply don't live the, the life, they don't walk the talk. But that is true of you and it is true of me. And so the whole litmus test, I think, of spirituality when it, it comes to, I think, the uh, attitude that we have to God's people at the, at the breaking of bread. Now, <clears throat> all the time we are, we are seeing God's grace in this chapter. But even though they did not live up to the terms of the covenant, statement of faith if you like, to, to, to the, the moral uh, requirements which there are for those who claim to be God's people, all the same, God thirsted for relationship with them. And this should be our attitude. The whole attitude of, well, we're not talking about that, 
yes, well, there's thousands of people in that group or this group, and we're not going to have anything to do with them. Well, because that's the position we've adopted, and don't ask too many questions, and uh, keep your keep your head down on that one. Let's just get on with the uh, with the social functions of our our little group, and uh, you know, we all love each other, and uh, etc. All will be well and good. Uh, this is a very dangerous attitude. It's a very dangerous attitude because we are not reflecting the thirst which God has for relationship with his people. And God was willing to, if you like, cynically looking at it, compromise his own uh, basis of fellowship in order to have fellowship with people, to have a people. You know, as I said, the first covenant, look, here's the, the deal. If you're obedient, then you shall be my people, and I shall declare you as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation unto myself. They did not keep their side of it, and now 40 years later, God is saying, okay, fine, um, I'm going to repeat the covenant anyway. It's a sort of a unilateral grace that he shows. And if it were not for such unilateral grace, who should stand? You would not stand. I would not stand. And we are asked to reflect that in our attitude to others. Now, while we're in Deuteronomy 29, I suppose I have to comment on that well-known verse at the end, which um, I guess we've all uh, scratched our head about, and I still scratch my head about it, but um, I'll share my uh, scratchings of my head with you. Uh, Verse 29, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Now, why does he suddenly say that? Is he just saying, ah, you know what, God knows a lot of things, uh, but they're secret, but there's just a few things that he reveals to us. Well, if that's all he's saying, then why why just throw that in here? If that's just a general principle. And even if it means, as some translations have it, that uh, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but he has revealed them unto us and to our children forever, well... Okay, but uh, why? Why threw that in here? Well, I want to suggest the following. That the things which have been revealed in the context of the chapter are the things of God's law, God's covenant with Israel. That is what he had revealed to them. And I think what he's saying is that they should not think They should not think that that law and that covenant that had been revealed to Israel was all there was of God. He's telling that audience that were hearing his words that there was a lot more. That there was secret things which had not yet been revealed to them. 1 Corinthians 2 verses 9 and 10, I think help here. I hasn't seen nor ear heard nor has entered into the heart of man the things the things which God has prepared for them that love him. But God has revealed them unto us. This is Christians, those after the time of Christ, by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things or the hidden things of God. So he's saying that previously no eye has seen or heard, and he's in Deuteronomy 29 uh, verse 4, God says that Israel did not have eyes that saw, etc., Uh, nor, as it were, ears to hear all these things. Uh, But he says they have been revealed now unto us in the time and the dispensation of Christ. So I think that what he's saying to them is, look, this amazing grace that I am showing you by making this covenant with you again 
even though you did not fulfill its conditions, but all the same, I pour out my grace to you by making it again, as it were, unilaterally, because I so thirst for you as my people. He's basically saying, and you know what? The best is ahead. That that I'm showing you, what I've revealed to you just now, this is just a fraction of some hidden things which are still hidden with God, that is, at the time of Deuteronomy 29. And what are those hidden things? The things that have been revealed unto us, the things about Christ. And as I say, I'm pretty sure 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10 has this verse in mind, this whole chapter in mind. And so it's sort of beyond logic, really. We read here of God's grace in desiring to have this relationship with them, and we marvel at it. And then the last verse of the whole chapter, the whole statement of this amazing grace says, and you know what? The grace that is in Christ is was at that time still hidden, but for us, you and me, this has been revealed now in Christ in the ministration of the Spirit. So then, as Paul says, it is grace upon grace that really and truly we shall be saved. God, to put it as simply as possible, God loves us with a passionate love that desperately wants us to be his people. And we need to believe that, to feel it, to rejoice in it, and then to go out at whatever cost and do likewise.